Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. Hope you had a a great week. Good to see you here this morning as we continue uh, in worship. Um, You know, this morning I wanted to spend a couple of minutes on the front end really addressing a little bit of uh, last week's message um, and really the intent behind what I said specifically during the introduction time. Uh, if you heard the message, you know that I spoke, at, that I spoke about uh, the Capitol attack that happened on January 6th. And uh, it's come to my attention since then that uh, some of us felt like I was making a political statement, specifically taking one side against the other. And uh, there was some concern there in terms of the inconsistency that that might have represented, considering that typically when I talk about politics, especially when we went through our Perfect Union series and we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, I made it clear to say, like, I'm not taking one side or the other. This is about the kingdom of God, and we're talking about it from that perspective. And so um, I I wanted to clarify some things and just by way of communication this morning as we begin. First, let me say this. Uh, I realize that I am responsible for everything that I communicate up here on Sunday mornings, which includes, among other things, the words that I say, how I choose to put those words together in syntax to form statements and ideas, and really the tone in which I say it as well. And so I say that because I realize that in talking with um, some folks that uh, part, of what, uh, uh, part of what has gone on is really just a lack of communication, that miscommunication was a big part of the issue in terms of the intent that I uh, had behind what I said versus maybe even what was said and certainly what was heard and understood by some folks. And so I want to say that where I was unclear about my communication or where I was lacking in my communication, I sincerely apologize to you. Um, So the question then is, what was my intent? My intent last week was not to take a side on an American partisan politics issue, nor has it ever been the case when I've talked about the the political climate in our country. In fact, I've heard many say to me, like, when we hear you talk about politics, we wish we could just pin you down on one side or the other, but it's really hard to do that because we don't know which side you're on when you talk about those things. And believe it or not, that's the most encouraging thing you can say to me in some cases when I talk about politics, is that you can't tell which side I'm on because I'm not up here when I address those things to take a partisan stand on either side or the other. That's not what this pulpit is for. This pulpit pulpit is to glorify Jesus and to point to the kingdom of God. And to the extent to which we talk about politics is to promote the kingdom of God politics, not one side or the other in an American political situation. And so my intent in talking about what I talked about last week was to expose what I see as political idolatry and its end result. Uh, I mentioned that extremists who had violently attacked our capital as well as the extremists who had attacked our cities over the past seven months or so have taken their political identities too far, in my opinion. And especially when you resort to violence as a way of solving your issues or a way of expressing your politics, I think it's something that we can all agree is based upon a false belief, and as I used the phrase last week, a false narrative. And not too long ago, the worst thing that politics could be in the life of a Christ follower, and maybe we're talking about not even 10 years ago, was that um, it could be a distraction at times or a frustration. But I feel like more and more, as we progress, politics is in America is becoming almost a religion in and of its own right, with its own worldview, its own path to salvation, and its own way of interpreting the world. And many of these thoughts and many of these worldviews are actually contrary to biblical Christianity. 
And so when I speak about these things, it's a way of helping us see, really as James is going to warn us throughout this book, about how ideas, beliefs, and, 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 and ways that we think about things actually lead to greater ends in terms of actions and the way that we live out our lives. And when I talked about what I talked about last week, it was to point out the reality that although we can't see people's motives, we don't always know what they're thinking, we can't judge their motives, we can certainly judge actions that we see as good or evil. And I would hope that as we look at what, happened, what has happened throughout our country, all the examples of violence, and by the way, I used the word violence over and over again last week to distinguish between those who were violent and those who were peaceful. That's the reason I use that word so many times. But I think when we talk about violence, whether no matter where it happens, as a political expression in our country, I hope we can agree that that's not the way of Jesus. All of this is why I addressed what I addressed last week. I believe that in our setting, in our country, we're facing a lot of things that are possible distractions and that are temptations. I believe that one of those things that are the most important, that are the most significant right now, is political partisanism in terms of how it has polarized us and how it has divided us, not just as a country, but even in the church as well. And so I believed in speaking to what I spoke to last week was a way of cautioning us and warning us about the dangers of what we face in this climate that we're in right now. And in my view, look, what I'm doing every time I stand up here is in my best moments, I'm doing what I've been called to do as a pastor and as a shepherd, as the under-shepherd of the one who is the great shepherd, the good shepherd who is Jesus, which is speaking to his sheep, so to speak, and instructing them, guiding them, and at some times even warning them. And I realize that, you know, there may be times where I have to look and say, look, I know it's hard out there. I know it's difficult. We're all going through this. There's a burden on us. I know the sun is hot, and you're just looking for a place to rest. And that tree over there with a lot of shade looks really inviting. But i got to tell you that based on what I feel like the Good Shepherd is saying to us, that's not the place we need to rest because of the, there's a wolf behind that tree that we can't see. And look, I don't come to you as the one who sees it all. But I do feel like, in, again, in my best moments, I come, to, I come to you as one who is trying to help you understand what I believe the Good Shepherd is saying to us through his word. And he is the one who sees it all. And sometimes it's guidance, sometimes it's warning, sometimes it's encouragement. But in what I've been called to do as a pastor, as a preacher, is to warn you sometimes from Scripture. And you may hear me and you may think to yourself, I don't agree with that interpretation of Scripture. I don't agree with that interpretation of the application of that Scripture. And that's well within your right, not only your right, but I think your directive to do that. In Scripture, we are told to discern, to not just listen, but to discern. And I'm not under any delusions that I'm up here speaking the very words of God every time I open my mouth. In fact, I would encourage you to listen with a discerning ear. We're told to do that. Those of us who are Christ followers have the Holy Spirit within us. We're told then to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us understand. As Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. I would always say this, test anyone who is teaching you Scripture. Does it line up? How does that teacher get to his conclusion? And what interpretation is he coming from? We're called, all of us, to do that. 
But in the end, I, one thing I want to make clear is that no matter where you consider yourself to land on this ever-changing political spectrum that we're a part of, which it's always changing, it's always being redefined right now, it seems like, week by week, day by day, who knows what's left, who knows what's right anymore? I don't. I don't know if you do. But it's changing all the time. But no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, I want you to know that you're welcome here at North. We want you here at North. We want you to feel at home and not rejected by the way that you believe about politics. And at the same time, I want you to know more than anything that our focus is always going to be on Jesus and his kingdom. Not on taking one side or another on a political issue or a political platform. Not just politics, but a myriad of other things. What does it look like for us to live out the kingdom of God as a church together? That'll always be our focus. And so let me just say lastly, thank you. Thank you for your understanding. Thank you for your willingness to give me grace where I've needed it. Thank you for your willingness to help to, to understand and to extend that grace when I've missed my marks in my communication to you. And thank you for being willing to approach me and talk with me about things when you feel like something has been said that you're concerned about. And thank you most of all for displaying what it looks like to be the church. That even when we disagree on things, that we're committed to the fact that we have one Lord, one Spirit, and we're one church together because of what He has done for us. So lastly, let me just say, so again, let me just repeat this, but if you have any, if there's anything that else that any of you need to talk to me about, please know that the door is always open. But for now, We'll close the door on that because we've got to get to our scripture for today. Amen. Which I think is a welcome relief a little bit, right? You, thank you. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll start into the book of James. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the grace that you show us. I thank you above all for your idea of the church. How wonderful it is for us to come together knowing that we come together under one Lord, by one spirit, and as one church. And so thank you for the reminder of that, knowing that we may disagree on a whole lot of things. There are, we are hurting, we are distracted, we are all over the place. And we're constantly being told a bunch of different things. That's part of the reason why we're going through the series we are right now. We need clarity from you, Lord. So we ask you for clarity from your word this morning as we get into the book of James. We thank you that you have given us your word that we might see more clearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, we are start, uh, continuing into our series called Getting Clarity in an Unclear World. And we're looking at the book of James in order to do that, to get a little bit more clarity. Not only, and, and today as we get into the book of James, we're going to start in verse 9. And what we're going to find out today is that not only are we, it, does the book of James give us clarity into the world that we're looking at that is often unclear, but the book of James is going to give us clarity into our own lives when things are sometimes unclear related to things like temptation in particular. What is temptation? What does it look like? How do we avoid temptation when we find ourselves into tempta in temptation? How do we not allow it to progress into a way that we ultimately find ourselves in a trap? This is what James is concerned about as we start in verse 9 here this morning. And so I'm going to begin reading in James chapter 1, verse 9, and it says this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the, withers the grass and its flower falls. 
and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, when James uses this contrast here between what he calls the lowly man and the rich man, he is actually talking about uh, financial situations. Uh, The word lowly is kind of a gracious way of saying poor, and so he's making this deliberate contrast between the poor man and the rich man. And what you see is that he has two different directives for the poor man and the rich man. He tells the poor man to boast in his exaltation, and he tells the rich man to boast in his humiliation. Now, this is not the only time that James is going to address the rich and the poor. In fact, throughout the book, you may know this, that James addresses the rich and the poor at least a couple other times throughout this book. And each time that he does, he has a lot more to say to the rich than he does to the poor. And in fact, it's of this tone that we've just read here, it's a lot more cautionary, and it's a lot more in the terms of warning, uh, warning the rich. And we're going to get into to why that is here in just a minute. But what's important to understand, and what James is doing here right off the bat, is that he is, of course, leading, as we mentioned last week, James was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem big-time leader in the early church, and one of the things it seems that he realized among his church is that as they were bringing rich people and poor people into the church, that the rich, there was a division between the rich and the poor. There was disunity between them because the rich and the poor were taught in the society that they lived in that the rich don't associate with the poor. They don't socialize with the poor, and much less they don't consider one another to be brothers and sisters. I mean, James is trying to bring this church together and say, you're to be brothers and sisters. You're to be a family, as Kirsten was just talking about before. You're to be a family together. And there was such a sharp division in their culture, in the world around them, about rich and poor, that it was easy for them to bring that into the church, and it was dividing the church. That's ultimately James's concern, at least on the front end here. So he tells them, He tries to bring the rich and the poor back to a place where they understand their common identity in the kingdom. And he's uprooting the identity that they have in the world, which is to be either financially rich or financially poor. And so that helps us make a a little bit more sense of this phrase, let the lowly or let the poor man boast in his exaltation and let the rich man boast in his humiliation, which if you take it on face value, is a little bit difficult to understand. But as we understand more of what James is doing, he's not only promoting unity within the church, but he's helping each person, the rich man and the poor man, understand the identity that they have in the kingdom. And so he says, first of all, to the poor man, boast in your exaltation. He's not telling them to be prideful necessarily, but to realize that they are not second-class humans, which in many cases they were understood to be. In many ways, If they were not in the church, the only way the rich and the poor related to one another is that if the poor were lucky, they could get a job serving the rich. And so it was very tempting for the rich to look at the poor as second-class citizens, maybe even subhuman in the way that they looked at them. And so Paul is, or, or excuse me, James is coming to them and saying, look, in fact, you are children of God, heirs to the promises of God in Jesus, Essentially telling them that in Jesus, you are more than you think you are. You are more than the world tells you that you are. You are not second-class citizens. You are redeemed, and you are children of God of equal worth in the kingdom, along with your rich brothers and sisters. And he's drawing them away from their status in the world to plant them firmly in their status in the kingdom, how God looks at them in Jesus. And James wants them to see themselves the way that God sees them. And he wants them to understand that their reality, their situation in life, their financial situation, their temptation would have been to think that God forgot them, that God didn't love them, 
that God didn't see what they were going through. And so James reminds them, look, you may never get out of your poverty in this case. We're going to describe, or we're going to talk about a little later. But know that this is how God sees you, and he hasn't forgotten you. Then James turns to the rich, and he certainly has some strong terms for the rich here, and it continues throughout what we're going to look at today. But as he turns to the rich, knowing that their temptation is just the opposite, to see themselves from an earthly perspective, but in a, in a way that causes them to see themselves as the elite, as the favored, he tells them to boast in their humiliation. Because the particular temptation that a rich man faced at that time was to think of himself as the one who probably felt like a master of his own domain, a master of his own destiny. Because to have money at that time and to have power at that time in the ancient world was to mean that you could basically get whatever you wanted or do whatever you wanted. On the other hand, the poor had to literally live day to day hoping that God might just provide almost like the Israelites in the wilderness. <laughs> that God would just provide the manna that I need today in order for me to eat. The rich never had to face that issue. So James has some strong words for the rich. But first is first, let's, let's answer this question. Who exactly are the rich? I mean, do we have a way of understanding who exactly James is talking to? And how that might be applicable to us? Well, Consider this, at the Roman, in the Roman Empire at the time, which of course this early church is in and James is speaking in, 90% of the population lived below the modern poverty level. So we have a poverty level, it's kind of a global poverty level, that depending on you know, inflation and currencies and all those things, just basically providing some of the essentials that you need on a daily basis. That's the poverty level in a lot of ways. 90% Nine out of ten people in the Roman Empire at this time lived below that poverty level. So they were essentially were people who just lived day to day. Now the 10%, the other 10% of the population, were people who tended to be super rich. Wealth was in their family. Wealth was generational. It was handed down from generation to generation. They were the people who were typically in control of government policies and power, and so they continued to reinforce policies that kept them rich and kept the poor poor. Now, here's the thing. As I was researching this, I realized that James is talking to the top 10% of the world when he calls out the rich. And so I decided to do some research. What would it take to be in the top 10% of the world today financially? You guys want to know what I found out? Are you nervous to, to, to hear what I found out? <laughs> here's the number. And this is by net worth, which of course means assets minus liabilities, but everything you own. Investments, property, savings, everything. And that number is $68,800 of net worth. Think about it this way. If you own a home and you put down 20% on your home at one point, you probably have more than that in the equity of your home. And that's in an empty home. You fill it with stuff. All of a sudden, you got more stuff, cars, whatever it may be, savings accounts, investment accounts, whatever that may be. $68,800 is that line so that if you have more than that in your net worth, you rank in the top 10% globally as far as wealth goes. Now, here's the point. It's not to shame you and to say, you rich people, right? It's to say this. I bet that number's a lot lower than you might have thought it would be, first of all. And secondly, to point to the fact that whether you consider yourself to be rich, whether you don't consider yourself to be rich, whatever it may be, if you live in modern-day America, you live in a wealthy culture. And I think I can probably safely say that, especially in this environment, in this room right now. It's not true for everybody, 
But the infrastructure that we've been able to build is a very wealthy culture. We have certain comforts, securities, and conveniences that people throughout the world lack, and people throughout history have lacked. And so we need to know that even though James doesn't condemn the rich just for being rich, we don't see that in the Bible. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to be rich per se. There are particular temptations, and there are particular things and trials that James is warning about that come to the wealthy just because we are wealthy. And I'll say this, I consider my, I say we because I consider myself to be rich. I've always been rich. Uh, I grew up rich by these standards. Even when I was first married and Katie and I were, you know, out in Fort Worth in seminary and she was teaching in a low-income school district and I was making a very, very part-time salary at a church and we would try to make a $5 Little Caesars pizza stretch the entire week for dinner, I was still rich. I just didn't want that money to cut into my book budget, but I was, we were still rich. And here's the thing, is that what James warns us about are particularly things that money often provides. Relative security and comfort, sometimes the illusion of control of our lives. We believe sometimes that the more money we have, the more wealth we have, the more we're able to control things, provide security, and in a lot of cases that's true. But at the same time, James warns us that going down that path causes us at times to be independent from God. To not have it be something that is a reminder, like a poor person would be completely reminded every single day that I'm completely dependent upon God to just provide what I have today. There are many of us who can go weeks or months without even thinking about God's provision in our lives because we can provide it on our own. Anybody uh, gone skydiving before? Any skydivers? Okay. Yeah. I have a good sense of, I asked this in the first service too, and the ones who raised their hand, I was not surprised that they had been skydiving because it takes a certain kind of person to go skydiving. And uh, I've had friends who have, have gone skydiving before, and inevitably you know that if you've gone skydiving, you're always trying to convince your friends to go skydiving at some point as well. And so I've had many friends come to me and say, man, you gotta go skydiving, it's so fun. And I'm like, oh, there's nothing that's really appealed to me, honestly, about jumping out of a rickety plane at 15,000 feet. It's just not something that I've really considered to be on my list. I don't wake up with that kind of desire. And so, but they've tried to convince me, saying, look, if you go to this company, like, they're really good, they're really safe. I mean, they double check and triple check all the equipment, all the buckles, every piece. They're going to make sure that before you go up there, you're, you know what to expect. You go through this orientation where they talk you through everything, and then when it's your first time, you get to go with a pro. You tandem jump. And they make sure that they take care of you. You have nothing to be afraid of. And I thought about this and realized that, you know, the reason why, of course, good skydiving companies are so meticulous, even when they know that they know that they know, <laughs> that they've double-checked those buckles and that equipment and that chute, and even when you feel like you can do it on your own, they're going to make you go with a, with a professional skydiver your first time, is because they realize what's at stake. And they realize if you make one small mistake, there's a lot a lot that could dangerously possibly happen, possibly happen in a very dangerous way. It seems like James is, that's what James is doing for us when he talks about wealth. He's calling us to be diligent about watching how those things can easily get a hold of our hearts, simply because we are wealthy. Here's a few dangers related to that, that it seems like James is warning us about. First of all, being rich has a way of pumping someone up with pride at times. Assuming that maybe because, as the rich man, he's made a lot of money, 
He may deserve certain things and be entitled to certain things that those who do not have as much money are not as entitled to. He may believe that he is rich because he's worked harder, because he's more intelligent, and because he's got a better education. And certainly sometimes those things may be true. But is it true in every circumstance? And then we have socioeconomic ideologies that reinforce that. We're told over and over again that we're entitled to the things that we have. Now, when you combine wealth with that reality, pride becomes a real danger. Self-sufficiency becomes a real danger. Greed also becomes a real temptation in our lives. Because if wealth is good, what's better than a good thing than more of a good thing? And that has a way of feeding greed. I've heard it said before that greed is the, is the sin that hides itself most, most well in our lives. Because greed always convinces us that we need more. Greed's, greed's mode of operation is, that, is telling us that we never have enough. And so you never think of yourself really as greedy. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Wealth and also the comfort and security that it produces can also cause us as Christians to lose track of the mission of God that God has called us to, especially if that involves sacrifice. We have to remember that the Lord who calls us to follow him once said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so there are times where he will call us to sacrifice. And the rich man may feel like at times, I've worked so hard to provide comfort and security and convenience in my life that I have so much to lose if I have to sacrifice that. We saw the rich young ruler experience this. As he went to Jesus and Jesus said, okay, if you're going to follow me, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And for the rich young ruler, that was a deal breaker. Because he had built so much up in his life, he wasn't ready to lose it all for the call of Jesus on his life. So sometimes it causes us to lose track of the mission of God. We're tempted in that way. Finally, money and the status that it provides can often separate and desensitize us from the daily needs of other people, especially those folks who are in need in other neighborhoods that we never go through, in other parts of town that we never visit. And as a result, because we don't see those needs, it's not necessarily nefarious on our part in any way, but it's just the fact that we don't see those needs and we don't experience the same material needs in many cases, that we don't see the needs that are out there. And it's almost like it's out of sight, it's out of mind for us. And so it can desensitize us to the people who are in real need. Now, here's the thing that I think James is calling us to to help us see, especially in this time of, especially in this, in this, in this uh, perspective of prosperity. What he's helping us realize is that no matter how much money we have, that that money itself is always God's. It's not something that we own. God still owns it. We're called to steward it. It's a gift that he gives us. And so we manage it according to the way that he would like us to manage his money. So that involves things like being able to provide for ourselves, being able to provide for our families, but it also calls us sometimes to provide for others. And many times, to be a blessing with the money that we have been given in the name of Jesus. And so it's not 100% to be spent on ourselves. It's actually to be used in the world to glorify Jesus. And again, it's not a sin to be wealthy. The Bible never says that. But we have to be extra diligent sometimes about what money can do to us, including creating a love of money in our hearts that gets a root in there causes us not to be as open-handed and as giving as we might be called to be. And look, 
when James talks about this, he also reminds us about the fact that sometimes we should boast in the Lord when God humbles us as wealthy folks, which sometimes means God will separate you from your wealth at times. Maybe you've experienced that in your life, times of financial difficulty that you've gone through where you've realized, wow, this this is really rough. But many times, you may have gone through that time and God has separated you from your wealth, but also shown you his provision and his goodness, especially during those times. And what you gain in that experience and God's presence among you is so much more valuable than any amount of wealth you could lose in this world. And James paints this picture for us by using the example of a flower in the desert. Now, we know what it looks like in the desert climate for flowers to pop up and then to fade, right? Fortunately, we'll get some rain sometime maybe in March or so. Maybe sometime, someday, we'll get some rain. And if we get that rain, typically what happens is that flowers will will bloom. We'll get some stuff that comes up. And it'll be here for maybe a month until like mid-April when it turns 95 and all of those flowers almost overnight completely fade and burn out. James provides that example for us to show us exactly what it looks like to be wealthy. Yeah, wealth lasts for a season, but when the heat beats down on it, it ultimately fades and and goes away. It's temporary. And the heat, which might be represented as, which might represent trials, often takes the substance of that wealth away from us. So that even if we keep wealth, When you face those times of trials, you realize that money is a very shallow substitute and a very shallow comfort for when you really experience trials and suffering. It reminds me of um, a cactus we used to have in our front yard in Tucson. Um, It was actually one that was potted in our front patio. And if you've ever seen, of course, I think many of us have seen a cactus flower before. Cactus flowers are some of the biggest and most beautiful flowers you'll ever see. Um, we had one, I took a picture of it, I had it in my phone, then I got a new phone and I can't find it anymore. So what I did was I brought a picture of what, what it really looked like. So a cactus flower, at least for us, was, one of the, was the most beautiful flower. Every time this thing would sprout, which would be like once a year actually, <laughs> most beautiful flower out of any plant that we had in our yard on our property. And so I loved it when that thing bloomed. But one thing I also knew is how temporary that bloom lasts for. You may know this, but There were times where it would bloom overnight. I'd wake up in the morning, walk by this flower, and know that when I got home that afternoon, the thing would already be starting to wilt because it only lasts like two days, at least ours did. And the point, of course, is that as beautiful and as wonderful and enjoyable as wealth can be, be, it's here for a moment, and it can be gone in the next, and even if it lasts a lifetime, in the end, it's temporary because you can't take it with you. And when trials come up, the desire for wealth or the love for money is one of those things that can fuel temptation and then lead to a trap, which James talks about here in the next section. Let's read here in verse 12, verses 12 through 18. It says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but the title for this message is called The, the Truth About Trials, Temptations, and Traps. And I love, alliter- I love alliteration whenever I could work it in. And I love the beauty of that alliteration. To get five words that start with the letter T, you know how hard that is to do? I'm really proud of myself in doing that. But here's the thing. And I know alliteration is cheesy, but pastors like myself tend to love that because it helps you remember a little bit better. And also it's just fun to do uh, when you're preparing a sermon for, you know, 20, 30 hours a week and it gives you a little bit of levity, excitement in that. But here's the thing is that James talks about all these three things, trials, temptations, and traps in this section. And to get to the point that James is ultimately making here, we have to make a distinction between trials and temptations to begin. We talked about last week trials being defined as those things that happen to us that are unexpected and that are unwelcome. So we didn't see them coming, maybe we didn't plan for them, and when they happen to us, they're unwelcome. They're not something that we would choose for ourselves, and generally they're unpleasant. Those are trials. But James makes a distinction between trials and temptations here. And what makes this a little bit more confusing even is that the same word in the Greek, if you like you were reading through the original text, the same word for trial is the same word for temptation. But what James tells us is that each one leads to something different. A trial, when embraced by faith, will actually lead you to steadfastness, faithfulness, and maturity. A temptation when followed through to the end, when leaned into, will actually lead you to a place where you sin and you sin and you get to a place where you're actually trapped and the end result of that is death. As James would say, the end result of enduring a a trial faithfully is the crown of life. Whereas if you press into a temptation, that's going to lead you to death. So we have to make a distinction here between trials and temptations. What exactly is James saying and how do we know the difference between a trial and a temptation? Well, Verse 14 is really helpful in this way. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That word desire, we can actually probably interpret to say evil desire. Desire itself is not a bad thing. We have desires just like God has desires. It's part of being an image bearer. God creates us with desires, but there's a difference between godly desires and evil desires. And what James is talking about specifically here is evil desires and how evil desires actually then produce temptation and as we fall into temptation produces sin and sin leads to more sin which leads to a trap which leads to an ensnarement and then eventually leads to death. We see this progression or this regression if you will as a result of temptation. It's important to realize because sometimes we think about temptation as something that comes to us from the outside. What James is telling us here is that Trials come from the outside, tests come from the outside, but temptation results from our inner evil desires which lead us then into temptation and sin. To explain how this looks differently, or to explain the distinction between these two, I want to illustrate this by, uh, by giving you a little scenario this morning. Let's say that, you know, we've been talking a lot about finances this morning, so let's say that a financial trial comes into your life. And you may be saying, that doesn't take a lot of imagination. I'm experiencing that right now. But let's say you were a small business owner. And like many small businesses today, you're struggling financially. You're feeling the pressure not only to keep the doors open in your business, but also also wanting to provide for your family and wanting to provide for the 12 employees that you have who have so wonderfully served in their roles in your company. So you're going through a trial. You're going through an unforeseen and unwelcome situation. 
And, no ma- and you've saved a lot, but no matter how much you saved, it doesn't seem like it's enough, and you're burning through the reserves of your company at a pace which can't be sustained. Pretty soon, you'll have to end up closing your business, and you're facing that reality. And in the midst of that trial, an opportunity comes to you. It's a really lucrative opportunity that'll help your business survive. It'll even help it thrive for the future and rebuild a lot of that reserve that you've had to spend over the past year to keep your business afloat. The problem is, is that this opportunity relies upon an unethical method of gaining money. And it will cause, in some cases, people to suffer repercussions, possibly, outside of your business for what you may decide to do. And although it's not technically illegal, it is certainly unethical. You know that you may find yourself in a position where you have to deceive people in some gray areas if you go forward. So, what would you do in that case? Your first reaction might be to dismiss it completely. I want to be honest with my business. Nothing is worth my integrity. And maybe as a Christian, you're committed to being truthful in your business practices. But then you begin to think about what would happen if your business doesn't survive? Your livelihood, your family's well-being, again, the 12 employees and their families, what would happen to them if the business went under? And it's not like you're doing anything illegal. I mean, what's the, so what's the big deal anyway? On top of all that, you're pretty sure that if you get this money, if you take this opportunity, that not only will it help your business to survive, but you can expand and provide more jobs for people who don't have jobs right now. What would you do and why? Is it an evil desire to want to provide for your family and for the financial security of other people you care about? The employees who have worked so hard and maybe deserve a break? Maybe they deserve a bonus that you weren't able to give them at the end of the year? While it's not an evil desire to want to provide for our families, not every temptation or trap, of course, looks obviously evil. In fact, in order for a good trap or a good lure to work, it's actually got to look like a good thing in order for us to typically fall for it, right? Otherwise, you could just throw a hook in a river and catch a bunch of fish. You don't have to worry about putting any kind of lure on it or any kind of anything else that helps to convince the fish that this is something that's good for it. David Nystrom says this, lures are not effective if they appear obvious. They are only effective if they appear as something they are not, or at least as relatively harmless. The most effective temptations in our lives are the ones that hide themselves well and hide themselves really within our own desires. Because when they hide themselves within our own desires, we feed them, we rationalize them. They're our own. We've given birth to these things. And so we often are tempted to downplay sin and its effects, to rely on worldly wisdom, and to continue to coddle our desires. But as James says here, before we know it, If we follow those evil desires, they lead us into temptation. And we find ourselves lost in sin, which begets more sin, until ultimately we find ourselves in a trap, and we wonder how it is that we got here. And as James will say, the actions and the words that we say and the way that we're living will eventually look at our lives and just wonder, how in the world did I get to this place? This is something I thought I would never do. This is something I thought I would never say. And look at where I've arrived. You may have seen over the past few years the ways in which several church leaders and pastors have fallen from the places that they've led, the churches that they've been leading. Some very big names in the uh, evangelical world. 
I'm convinced, and many of them fell because of sexual sin, some of them fell because of greed, some of them fell because of power trips or whatever it may be, being abusive in their environments. I'm convinced, though, that they didn't wake up just one day and decide they were going to have an affair or steal money from the church. In fact, how it happened probably looked a lot like what James is describing here. They rationalized their lust. They rationalized their power over people. They convinced themselves that I've done so much for the church and they're not paying me enough, so maybe I should take a little bit more for myself. They hid it from others. They hid it from themselves. And in reality, they found themselves in a trap in the end. So notice what James says here. The answer to this, and it's very simple, in fact it's so simple it's almost cliche, he tells us to trust God. But he he tells us to trust specifically the Father of lights. Now this is a strange word or a strange moniker for God because we don't see it really anywhere else in scripture at least explained in this way. What James is actually using is a moniker that was in common phrase at that time. When they were talking about lights, it was talking about the heavenly bodies, the stars that are in the sky. Many of the ancients looked to the sky for direction. They looked to the sky for provision. And James says, look, not only do we know the light, so to speak, or the heavenly bodies, but we know the Father of lights. We know the one who has created it all. We know the one who is in charge of it all. And as James says, with with whom there is no shadow of change. And he is the one who gives us every good and perfect gift. And so, in the small business scenario, God gave you those finances. He gave you the ability to start that business. He gave you all of it to be a faithful steward. And maybe, if you pass on that unethical way, he might provide something, pass on it on Tuesday, maybe on Friday, there's something, another door that God opens up that's an ethical way. Might not provide as much money, but at least it's true and right. Maybe God decides to allow that business to go under. Maybe it's his will for that to happen. In the end, what James says here is ultimately trusting in God is the highest calling. Even when it fights and distinguishes between our desires. And so whether it's a small business or a job or concerns about the way the world is moving in culture and in politics, it's the same. Trials will come. They'll come to us in all different forms and fashions. But how, we, but how do we avoid the snare? How do we avoid the thing that threatens to trap us? Well, I want to give you three things as we close. Three ways, really, to identify the traps when they come. And three ways to avoid them when you recognize them. First of all, traps are most effective when we don't recognize their capacity to do damage. As David Nystrom says again, a lure may appear harmless and innocent to our eyes, but in reality it has dire consequences. Now look, either because we don't see it in ourselves, or we downplay or rationalize those things when we do, those temptations and that sin in our life when we do, lures are often most effective when we are tricked into believing that they won't do any real damage to our lives or damage to others. Secondly, we are most susceptible to traps when we downplay sin. Again, David Nystrom says when James discusses the evil inclination, or really that desire that he talks about, modern people have a tough time believing him. Because contrary to all evidence, we seem intent on forcing ourselves to believe that human beings are essentially good. And that's especially true when it comes to us. We like to assign our desires 
much better ranking than really they often deserve. We like to, to, uh, to assign sometimes evil desires as good desires because there are desires, right? I mean, we're basically good in most cases. We're well-meaning people. But what this tells us to, to realize is that sin is truly as bad as God says it is, and sin is truly as widespread in our hearts as the Bible claims that it is. And third, traps will do the most damage in our lives when we blame shift. You know, you may have often heard it said that we live in a victim culture where people like to blame things on other people. In reality, we've been living in a victim culture since day one of humanity. Because a part of the original sin, right, do you remember what happened when Adam sins? The first thing that he does when God confronts him on sin, he blames his wife, first of all, which is not great for your marriage. And then secondly, he blames God. And then Eve, the woman, blames the serpent. The devil made me do it. And ever since that time, we've lived in a blame-shifting victim, victim culture. And it's not out there. It's actually in here, in all of us. It's a part of sin. We love blaming others for why we do what we do, especially when those things are wrong or when they're sin. We love to blame our circumstances, and sometimes we even blame God for the things that we say and we do. James anticipates this, and he tells us, do not be deceived, brothers. God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by anyone. But where does sin come from? Where does temptation come from? It comes from right in here. It comes from the desires within your heart. People love the book of James until they actually have to read the book of James, right? We were talking about this this past week in staff meeting, and um, I was mentioning how Several people come up to me and say, I love the book of James, can't wait to get into it. And I made that comment. People love the book of James until you actually have to read and apply the book of James. And it's really, really, really direct, and it's tough. And somebody on our staff said, I think they like the book of James because they like to point to the person next to them and say, you need to read this, you need to hear this. <laughs> it's blame shifting, right? It's the heart of it. So finally, how do we respond to this? Number one is to recognize. Recognize where our own desires set traps for us. We are people with desires, but like we said, there's godly desire in us as believers, but there is also evil desire. And how do we know the difference between those two? Go back up to James chapter 1, I believe it's verse 5, where James tells us to ask for wisdom from God, who generously gives to all of those who ask of him. Continue to ask for wisdom, to see from God's perspective in every situation, where is my desire evil, where is my desire God-honoring? Because we are good at rationalizing, we're good at making things deliberately unclear and blurring the lines in our own hearts. And persist in asking God until he gives you clarity. Don't do it once and check it off the list. Persist in asking God for wisdom. Secondly, see our own sin for what it is and confess it. When we get that wisdom, we have an opportunity to see from God's perspective exactly where that sin is. Confess it. Don't rationalize it. Don't baby it. Don't feed it. There's a simple principle on this. Is what you feed will continue to live and get stronger. What you starve will die, and what you cut off will die. Also heard it put this way. Baby tigers are really cute. They're a lot of fun to have as pets, but they're not great to have as pets because one day they grow up, and when they grow up, they're killers, and they will ultimately eat you one day. That's kind of what sin is like. And then finally, Trust. Trust what God says about how dangerous this is in our lives 
when we see it and repent at all costs and get away from it and turn to trust God. Don't wait. Don't make excuses. Don't hem-haw about it. Don't rationalize it away. Recognize it for what it is and move on it. So I want to pray for us as we close. I ask the band to join us on stage. I want to pray for us. I want to pray these three things, that God would give us the wisdom to recognize, to see, and to trust what he wants, us to, do, what he wants to do in our hearts. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've given us the church. It's your idea to draw us together. And Father, one of the things that we get to do together is talk about your word together. So we thank you for the ability to come and to worship this morning. And we ask, Lord, is that as we, as we move through what it means for us to gain wisdom, to see these ways that we need to recognize, see, and then trust you, Father, that we would continually come to you asking for wisdom, knowing that it's not something that you cause us to check off all this, but you want us to see from your perspective what you were doing in our lives. And I pray that for those of us um, who seek you in that way, that you would help us to see that what you give us, even in those times where we have to be humbled, is much more valuable than the things that we have to give up, our pride, our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, maybe even our material wealth in some cases. Those things that you take from us, you take from us because you give every good and perfect thing as our Father who loves us. So I pray we'd be able to trust you, Lord, even when we don't see the end, even when we don't see how this thing is going to help me, and it's really hard to do. Lord, give us the grace. Give us the strength. Give us the faith to do it. And above all, give us your wisdom so we can see clearly how to move forward. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Um, brevity, I've never been blessed with brevity, brevity. I don't claim to have that, so I'm sorry we're cutting into a little bit to your lunch hour, but we have something important we want to do this morning. Many of you know uh, Adam and Kayla Knight. Adam, of course, is our pastor of students and young adults, and uh, Kayla serves as our a director of the preschool ministry, and uh, we want to invite them up this, this morning. Uh, they have an important announcement to make about what God is doing in their lives. We want to celebrate that with them as they share a little bit. Would you give them a hand? <laughs> Guys, thank you for joining us in the middle of the lunch hour. Hope you're not hangry with me, but uh, we, we, uh, we want to hear a little bit about what God's doing in your life, and so we brought you up here to share with us. Would you share a little bit with us about what's going on? Yeah. Yeah, so Kayla and I have been, been praying. Um, we're in agreement that this is, you know, the right time for us to move back to Ohio. That'll uh, take place in April. We'll be moving back closer to home, closer to family. Um, I say back to Ohio. I'm, I'm from Ohio. Kayla's never lived in Ohio, and <laughs> neither have the kids. But um, we feel called at this time, I feel called at this time to pursue uh, a different ministry in the form of healthcare chaplaincy. And so 
when I go back to Ohio, I uh, I didn't I didn't mention this in first service, but as of Friday, I am officially accepted in the oh, uh, the clinical pastoral education program at the Ohio State University. Oh gosh. <laughs> o H I O, yes. <laughs> um, and so it's uh, it's a summer program, 400-hour program uh, to learn the skills and uh, what it takes to to serve in chaplaincy and hospice and healthcare setting. Um, the the person I interviewed with they said that a lot of people that come into the program have you know some sort of personal experience with chaplaincy and that's true for for myself. In July when I visited Ohio. Um, my grandpa was passing away, Grandpa Kincaid, and um, you know we got the call from hospice that he had about 10 days left, and so I got there on day nine, and was grateful to be able to say goodbye and, and uh, you know share some some time with my grandpa and share some time with his hospice chaplain Bernard, uh, who I was grateful for Bernard because my grandpa moved into this assisted living facility in March. And the week after he moved in, everything shut down across the country. Our family wasn't able to visit him in the room. They had to stand out in this courtyard and talk to him through a, you know, a screen window and everything. But Bernard kind of stood in the gap for our family in those last months of my grandpa's life. And so I was super grateful for that. In July, I think that's when the wheels started turning for us and um, you know, doing a little bit more research about that and what, what it would look like. In, so that's the reason, like, that God is calling me into a new season of ministry. We're excited about that. Of course, we're, you know, it's hard to, to leave a place like North that we consider to be church family. And you guys have been just so generous and obedient to God just in the way that you have blessed us as a, a couple you know, newlyweds when we first moved out here in 2013 and then raising our two kids as well. And so we are grateful for our time here. We're, uh, we are excited. We're hopeful for the future and at, at peace with this decision, this, this calling from the Lord. But uh, we're, we're grateful for even the opportunity, Jay, um, to grow in our roles here at North under your leadership and the opportunity to share with you guys as well. So, Kayla. Well, uh, when I first started dating Adam, I had to, I wrestled with God a lot about, do I really want to be that selfless and be a youth pastor's wife or somebody who works in ministry? Do I want to, do I want to be able to not only give of myself, but give my husband, um, as well. And, um, God won and, um, and he provided and we moved out here and, um, away from family and God provided family here for us um, and whenever just along the road whenever something felt uncertain um, God showed up and provided and um, I'm just so grateful to all of you um, it's incredibly sad to say goodbye we um, but at the same time um, it's, it's good to be uncomfortable as you answer God's call. Um, and wherever he goes, wherever Adam goes, I go with him. So <laughs> so I will be sad to not be uh, with the preschoolers and with my awesome volunteers. Um, but I know that you're in good hands. And um, 
we're just really uh, excited. I talked to my grandma the other day, and I told her the news, and she's in her uh, late 80s, and she... <laughs> She just said, oh, I'm so excited for what God's always doing in your lives, but I'm so tickled for me. <laughs> um, so we are tickled to be with um, grandparents who are still around and, and all of that. Um, so, but we are so thankful for you guys. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this possibility for the better part of a month, maybe almost two months at this point, and uh, one word that we keep, it keeps coming to the surface, bubbling to the surface, is bittersweet, because it's going to definitely be tough to say goodbye, to tough, tough to see the change happen. Uh, we are going to leave a hole here, you know, as, as a result that will need to be filled, but uh, not only just in our ministries, but in our relationships here. Relationships will continue, but of course, they're certainly going to change. And, um, and we're going to miss you guys. Uh, you know, I've been here a year and a half, and I've enjoyed, as you know, I've enjoyed getting to know you, consider you friends of mine. And so it is, on, on, on a lot of levels, it's going to be tough to say goodbye. That's the bitter part of it, right? But the sweetness in all of this is that we get to say that we are a part of being able to launch you on to the new place where God is calling you, to see not only a new chapter in your life, but as you mentioned, a new season in ministry in something that I feel like personally, as I've shared with you, you are very much well equipped for, and God's going to use you in some great ways, in a ministry that is needed. If you've ever had to go through what Adam described, you know that those who are chaplains do uh, a needed ministry in our world and in the kingdom. And so we're excited to see how God's going to use you going forward. Um, would you guys join me in praying for um, Adam and Kayla? I want to tell you ahead of time that you're going to have plenty of time to say, say goodbye and appreciate them. Uh, they're, they're embarking on a transition period that's going to last about two to three months. We don't have the exact date yet when will be their last Sunday here. But uh, there's going to be time. We're going to have some time to appreciate them and to say goodbye. Part of what they're doing during this transition time is helping us to transition to new leadership in the ministries that they're leading. And then, of course, that gives us a chance to really um, appreciate them as they leave and get a good, good, healthy goodbye in as we launch them out uh, at some point this spring. Okay. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Adam and Kayla. I thank you for what uh, you have done in them in our church over the past seven years. And as we mentioned, it's not just ministry, although they've done a great job at impacting the lives of people in this church. And we know that anytime that happens, Lord, even though they leave, they leave a piece of their, themselves behind in the imprints that they've made in the lives of our students and the lives of our children, the lives of our families that they've been a part of in the lives of our young adults as they've imprinted and they've shown so many ways in which uh, Jesus is evident in their lives. And so thank you for drawing us closer to Jesus because they have been here. And Lord, we pray that as they get ready for these next couple months of transition, Lord, that you would give them wisdom, that you would ease their path. I thank you, praise you for Adam's acceptance into the program. Although we wish it may have been at a different school, we're glad that it is an opportunity for him to Continue what you have placed in his heart and equipped him going forward. Lord, thank you for your goodness. I see it shining in their lives. And I pray for, Lord, even greater blessing ahead as they follow the call on, your lives, as on their lives, as difficult as it may be to make those initial steps. Father, we know that as we make those steps, you meet us in that moment and you carry us forward. We pray that that would be true for Adam and Kayla as we say goodbye over these next couple months. Bless them, encourage them. And may us as a church at North 
as we look to move on, Lord, give us blessing and wisdom as well as we try to decide what the next steps forward are for us as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a good week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.